0: Mark 15. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 41. My plan was to go all the way through the end of the chapter, um, but for your sake and mine, we are going to stop at 41. And then next week, Lord willing, we will finish the Gospel of Mark. And so we'll we'll cover from um, from 42 of chapter 15 through chapter, or through verse 8 of chapter 16. Now, I'll say more about this next week, but just so you know, so you're not surprised, we won't cover Mark 16, 9 through 20. So that's just a heads up. Next week when we get there, we're not going to cover those, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, so maybe you could this week read, read verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16, and um, then you can come next week with your questions. But, but we're not going to preach through those. I mean, I'll tell you why next week. Um, but that's next week. This week we're here, we're continuing the crucifixion account of Jesus, so it's the crucifixion of the king, part two. And so we're going to see that the events of Christ's death, his crucifixion, continue to unfold. And this morning we're actually going to behold Jesus breathing his last, and so this whole passage focuses on the death of Christ. And actually this passage, it's fitting because this passage is going to serve as a type of on-ramp. To the Lord's Supper. So, this is going to be the focus. This table in front of me is going to be the focus of our time together. So, all this sermon is to lead us to this table. So, this is the application point here, right in front of me. And so, we'll do that at the end of our service um, this morning. So, let's, let's read. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm going to begin in verse 21 of chapter 15, and I'll, I'll read through verse 41. So, so Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, that's Jesus, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. In the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and he filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and younger James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they were also, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray that this morning that you would, you would show us our need for, for the bread of life. Would you show us our need for Christ this morning? I pray that you would nourish us, nourish our faith with your word, strengthen our faith, sustain our hope, compel our love. We come like Peter, admitting there's nowhere else for us to go. Who else but you have the words of eternal life? And so we as your people we want to hear from you this morning, so we pray that you would speak to us in Christ's name, amen. Well, three three divisions, three sections of, of this passage. We see first the king's crucifixion, so the actual the, the completion of the crucifixion there, verses 21 through 32. And then the king's dramatic death there, verses 33 through 39. We, we see these, these dramatic signs, these events that accompany the death of Jesus. And then finally, the, the three verses at the end, or the two verses at the end, the king's disciples. And so let's work through these. One by one as we go. So let's begin the king's crucifixion, beginning in verse 21. Now, as I mentioned, this this passage picks up the account that was started last week. So last week, verse 20 ends with the soldiers leading Jesus out to crucify him. And verse 21 picks up the trek made by Jesus and the soldiers leading from Pilate's palace to the place of the skull. You see there in verse 22. But in verse 21, Mark introduces a man named Simon of Cyrene, now, it's interesting that he mentions the sons of Simon, Alexander, and Rufus. Now, everyone you read says he mentions them because as Mark is writing, his audience will recognize these men. So he says, oh, Simon was coming. Oh, you know Simon, or you know Rufus and Alexander? Yeah, it's, their dad is the one. So it's, it's fascinating to think about his readers knowing the sons of Simon. But, but here, Simon was, was almost certainly a Jewish man who had come to the Passover. He'd come to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the Passover, and he's compelled by the soldiers to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, just, just for your um, clarification's sake, when it says that Jesus was forced to carry his cross, maybe you've seen a picture where it's the, a whole cross, where it's where it's the cross piece and, and then the middle piece that he's carrying over his shoulder. That's, that's probably not what happened. And so the cross here is simply the, the traverse beamer or the cross piece of the cross. So the, the, the prisoners would carry this cross piece, which then when they, they get to the crucifixion site, there would have been a, an upright stake, this other piece of the cross that would have remained at the execution site. So they just have this cross beam, then he's attached to that and then put up on the cross beam and, and lifted up. And so that's, that's Jesus carrying just this one beam of the cross. And, and Mark doesn't say why Simon was compelled to carry the cross, but it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, remember with the soldiers, he's been scored, so he's beaten and, and he's endured all that he could. So he carries, carries the beam a short distance and then can't go any further. And so, so these soldiers with, with no option here, they can't, Jesus obviously can't carry it. So they say, here, grab him. So Simon is forced to step in. Well, Simon and Jesus and in this procession, they, they arrive at Golgotha, which, which would have been outside the city. That was required. All these crucifixions, they took place outside the city. These are things that, that aren't fit to be seen inside a city, So they take them outside the city, but, but these would be placed along roads of travel or trade. The, these Romans wanted all the people traveling, as many as possible, to see the crucifixion or to see the remnants of the crucifixion. The, the Romans viewed crucifixion as, as a type of a public announcement. They wanted people to see and say, Oh my, I don't want to upset the, Romans, the Roman government. I don't want to do harm here. So so Jesus would have been would have been seen by many people as they traveled along this road as he was here on Golgotha. And notice when they get there verse 23 he's offered wine mixed with myrrh. Now now, now this wine mixed with myrrh now some people will say some people will say that this wine this drink would have been offered by Jewish women. So they say that this this drink would have been given to dull his pain it would have a dulling effect. Okay, so some people say, well, here the, these women see Jesus in his pain; and they want they want to help him, so they offer it to him. Now, if that's the case, Jesus here refuses, and he'd be refusing in order to, to feel the full effects of his suffering, right? So he refuses. Now, now that that's one option of what this drink is for. Others say that this wine is 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 not for that purpose, but this would have been offered by the soldiers as a continuation of their mocking of him. So you say, well, here's a king's drink for the king. Drink this wine. Drink this, you king, right? Do you see how that's different? If the soldiers are offering, they're just continuing to mock. And so Jesus, if if that's the case, he's refusing to partake in that for obvious reasons. So either way, I I don't think there's one that has more evidence than the other. Either way, Jesus refuses to drink. So he's offered this drink and he refuses. And notice verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them. And so just like that, we get to verse 24. And Mark says, and they crucified him. Just like that. It's surprising here because Mark's gospel, since the end of chapter 8, has been leading towards this climax, this crucifixion. And when this this climax finally comes, Mark states it as briefly as possible. They crucified him, right? This is three Greek words, so there's four, and they crucified him, right? But, But the Greek words, there's only three of them. And so it's not just Mark. In all all four Gospels, the description of of the crucifixion is with remarkable brevity and restraint. They crucified him. Mark records. And then they, moving quickly on, they, soldiers, divided his clothes. Now, now most of the time, the Romans would, would crucify their. They're criminals naked. They wouldn't have clothes. So so people say this is probably they're they're accommodating Jewish customer. Okay, so, so they say, let let's let's at least let him leave his clothes on. We don't want to upset the Jews. And so they they, they say this is why there is clothes. But if there were clothes, it wouldn't have been abnormal for the, the soldiers to then divide them up and so I want this, I want, I want this. And so they crucified him and the soldiers divide the clothes. Verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, third hour, th- this would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, we'll, we'll say more about this in a minute, but, but it's interesting here Mark begins honing in on, on the specifics. He, he's noting times, and, and the times will, will run all throughout. He's careful to pay to, to record the details of this crucifixion, especially the time. And so, and so the, it's, he's crucified at 9 a.m. And now as we look through these, these next verses, verses 26 through 30, I, I want to draw your attention to three things or, or three aspects of, of these verses that, that mock or, or misunderstand Jesus. So there's three things that, that occur that, that are mocking or misunderstanding Jesus. So, so first notice verse 26, this sign that's put up. This sign, and, and it reads, The King of the Jews. Now now every, every gospel account records the sign and they vary slightly, but all of them have king of the Jews as inscribed above him. This would have been a sign identifying so Pastor Bryce could see what is he in trouble for? Why is he being crucified? And so for Jesus, he's king of the Jews. It confirms the charge against Jesus, why he was being crucified. He's being crucified as a king, which is, of course, remember the, the soldiers are mocking him last week. That's why he claims to be a king. But everyone who's looking on say this is not a king. So they're mocking him. King of the Jews, look, look at this one. No one standing there, no one witnessing what's going on, really thought that he was a king. This man claimed to be the king of the Jews, so they put the sign up. Second, notice that those nearby are the passerbys, verses 27 through 30. Notice he was crucified with two robbers, one on each side. And, And Mark doesn't record anything except they reviled him and mocked him. So those immediately beside him, they're probably being tried, they're probably being crucified for the same reason Barabbas was to be crucified, which is murdering someone in the insurrection. So these are robbers who are guilty, and and even they join in with the mocking of Jesus. They're reviling him. But look at verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it, save yourself and come down from the cross. So Jesus is mocked not only by the the criminals beside him, but those who are passing by. And and here's here's what they see in their minds. They see Jesus crucified, and there's no way that this Jesus can do what he said. This man said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. How in the world, they're thinking, could he possibly accomplish that great feat if he can't even save himself from this crucifixion? I mean, let's, let's not forget, a dead man can't raise a temple, they're saying. If he, if he, if he ceases on that cross, there's no way he's going to destroy or raise the temple. If he's killed, he definitely can't do what he claimed that he's going to do, or at least that's what they thought, right? So they're mocking him. And then third, notice the chief priests and the scribes who are mocking him, verses 31 and 32. Now, this is not as surprising it's a bit surprising those walking by are mocking him, but but here the chief priests and scribes, they're they're the ones who've been driving this this process from the beginning. They've they've wanted to destroy him from Mark chapter 3, and so now they've led all the way, and now they've attained their goal. They see their enemy hanging on the cross, so they, too, join in in the mocking. They, They mock Jesus to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see And believe. So it's similar to to the previous charge. They saw a a suffering man on the cross, and in their minds, they couldn't comprehend how a passive, weak, beaten, dying man could possibly be who he claimed to be. Now, he claimed to be the Messiah, the one who, who conquered, and yet they see him being conquered. How could this man be the author of salvation if he can't even save himself? Come down, come down, they say, save yourself, and, and then we'll believe. Yeah, just come on down if you're the Christ, which we know these men. We've seen, this couldn't be further from the truth, they, they've seen sign after sign. They're hard-hearted, blind men who are demanding a sign that they'll never get, who, let's be honest, have closed their eyes to innumerable signs that's been shown already. Right, so this is their their, piet, their piety, this mask of piety. Oh yeah, we'll believe if you come down. Right? No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. So their mocking continues. So he's mocked by the sign and those nearby and the chief priests and the scribes. And, and before we move on to the next section, I just want to stop and I want to take these three instances of, of this mockery and I want to draw out the irony because Mark is loading this account with ironic things, ironic statements and signs. And every example, all, all three of these cases Is filled with great irony, and it's seen primarily in the fact that that Jesus' suffering, so they see his suffering. The very thing that makes it seem like he can't be who he says he is, right? That's they see his suffering. They say, no, that can't be true. What he said can't be true, King of Jews can't be true, he can't do that. Temple thing can't be true because of his suffering, but his suffering is in fact the very thing that must happen in order for him to do what he said he would do and be who he said he was. Do you see, that's, that's ironic. Their minds can't comprehend the suffering Messiah, but it's exactly that, the suffering Messiah, that accomplishes all that he said he would do and all that he was. I mean, so think about the irony of the sign. So he's labeled king of the Jews, as we've seen throughout this trial. It's not at all how Jesus is being perceived by those observing the events. I mean, even John's account of this draws this out more when the scribes and the Pharisees, they go to Pilate, they see the sign, king of the Jews. They say, wait a minute, don't put that he's not our king. Why don't you change it to say this man said he was king of Jews? They don't want king of the Jews being over him. But Pilate says, I've, I've written what I've written. Right? But, but that's the irony. We know as readers, as a result of this suffering, as a result of this crucifixion, this death, was the exaltation of Jesus. Right? It was his death and his burial that led to his resurrection, his, his exaltation, his vindication Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection, which doesn't come, does He not die, and is He not buried? And so His death is what led to His exaltation, this place of power, this this declaration that He is King of kings. So even here on the cross, Jesus is the King of Israel, the true King of Israel. Notice the irony of number two, those nearby, the passerbys. Remember, it's all about the temple with them. They, They say... You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And the irony here is seen in the simple fact, if Jesus saved himself, if Jesus comes down from the cross, the temple would not have been destroyed, right? This is clarified later for his disciples, but the temple is Jesus, his body. And so if he saves himself, the temple won't be destroyed. Saving himself and the destruction of the temple were incompatible, His death was the destruction of the temple. And so while they think he can't rebuild the temple if he's dead, the irony is his death is the very thing that enables the temple to be rebuilt. Do you see? Which is why Jesus remains on the cross. Because the temple will be destroyed and he will raise it in three days. Then third, notice the irony of the chief priests and the scribes. The most ironic charge. They say he saved others but he can't even save himself. According to these chief priests, as well as to to many others who are looking on, if if Jesus was truly the Messiah, if he truly was who he said he was, he would be able to come down from the cross. He would, right? Why couldn't the Messiah save himself? As they look upon the crucified man, they can't conceive of that man being the Messiah. They have no category, category for a suffering or a conquered Messiah. Yet, it is precisely by staying on the cross that Jesus is accomplishing salvation, it is precisely by staying on the cross that Jesus is accomplishing salvation, giving his life as a ransom for many. And so this is his act of salvation. All the saving that he did prior, they say he saved others. Right? They, they're, they're talking about him raising people from the dead or, or healing the lame or, or casting out the demon oppressed. All of that saving were merely pointers to what was happening on the cross. All, all of those miracles were, were pointers or precursors to the salvation that Jesus had come to accomplish. He came not, not primarily to, to heal and to cast up demons and, and to, to fix or heal lame hands and feet. He came primarily to, to save sinners from their sin. He was always going to die on the cross. His salvation was always going to be accomplished through his death on the cross. He was always going to be the sacrificial lame. He was always going to refuse to save himself so that he might save others. That's the irony of, of, of this crucifixion. Let's move on to verses 33 through 39, the, the king's dramatic death. And so as, as we look at these verses, there, there's four events. And so I'm going to point you to four dramatic events that accompany this death. And in these four events, I would say, they're, they're significant events that confirm this is no ordinary man. There's no ordinary criminal being crucified on Golgotha. So, so notice first, verse 33, the darkness. The darkness. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, I already said that, that the sixth hour to the ninth hour. If you remember, the, the third hour was nine, which means the sixth hour is noon, and the ninth hour is three in the afternoon. So this darkness is from noon to three. So as he's, as he's hanging on the cross, darkness reigns for three hours. I mean, think about that. Twelve noon. This is, this is the brightest time of the day when the sun is at its peak and should, should be shining. And yet here at 12 noon for three hours, there is darkness. Clearly, this was a miraculous darkening, a cosmic sign. But, but what's, what's the sign of? Why? What's the purpose of this darkness? Well, I think most obviously this darkness represents God's judgment. I mean, darkness is often associated with God's judgment. If Amos 8 Amos chapter 8, verse 9, Amos and other prophets talk about this day of the Lord, this final day of the Lord, this judgment. And listen to what Amos 8, 9 says. And on that day, this this final day, the day of the Lord, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So that's clearly part of what's being referred to here, this judgment of God. But also, I mean, I think also alluded to here. Think about the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, right? There's 10 plagues, and all of these plagues are signs of God's judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They they are holding in slavery God's people, and so God is judging them, and these plagues are signs of judgment. Do you remember what the ninth plague was? Before the 10th and the Exodus, the ninth plague was darkness, and this darkness was evidence of God's judgment. And so I think here the intention is, is, is that this darkness is, is God declaring his verdict regarding those who've rejected Jesus, those who have taken part in this. There's a judgment of those who rejected Jesus, a precursor, if you will, of that final day when those who reject the Son will be judged finally and completely. And I should stop here and simply say that if you're here this morning, you have two choices before you. Right? You, you can accept Jesus Or you can reject him, right? After being here today, you no longer have an excuse to say, I didn't know. I'm telling you, you can either accept or reject. You can accept, you can believe Jesus, you can believe that he is who he said he was, that he did what he said he came to do, that his death accomplished what he said it would accomplish, namely, the forgiveness of sins for those who repent of their sins and trust in him. So you can accept that, you can turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and find hope and life and salvation. You can do that today. Or you can reject him. You can refuse to believe him. You can refuse to believe his testimony. But it's not only his testimony you're refusing to believe, you're refusing to believe the testimony of of Mark and the other gospel writers. You're refusing to believe the testimony of thousands of people throughout the ages. You're refusing to believe the testimony of many people sitting in this room who say, no, he is who he said he was. He did what he said he did, and I've experienced that. And so if you, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting a whole host of those who have found Him to be true and faithful. And if you continue in your rejection, following the path of these scribes and Pharisees, you ought to be warned that you will one day face the righteous judgment of God. The darkness will never lift. It'll be far longer than three hours. And so today, turn from your sin. turn. To Christ and, and be saved, spared from the judgment of God that is righteous, that we all deserve. Our only hope is in Christ alone, in Christ, not us. And so turn to Christ, turn to Christ and be saved from the judgment that will come. Second sign here in these verses, notice Jesus' cry, verse 34. These are the only words that, that Mark records Jesus saying. Now, now we know that, that with the other Gospels, when we combine them, there's seven statements from the cross, but Mark here only records one. And that's the, the cry at the ninth hour, this is at three in the afternoon, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all that, that Mark records Jesus saying. The only words that he records Jesus saying. So, so here, Psalm 22, you, you should write down Psalm 22, this is what Jesus is quoting. This is how Psalm 22 begins. That, that psalm is a psalm of David where David asks that question, why have you forsaken me? He asks that question because David, as a psalmist, he sees himself as the innocent sufferer. He says, why, why am I suffering? Why are my enemies? Without reason, they're, they're pursuing me. Why, are you, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's the tenor of Psalm 22. And here, Mark records Jesus quoting that passage, I think primarily because Mark has gone to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the innocent sufferer par excellence, right? He is the one who is suffering innocently because he was the Messiah, because that's what he came to do. He was innocent. He wasn't guilty. He was pursued by his enemies. And here at the end of life, I think Mark wants his readers to know that, that there's a sense in which Jesus was abandoned, totally alone, No one there. Jesus is abandoned. So he cries, Why, Father, have you forsaken me? And we don't get the image of of this serene Jesus smiling on the cross with a little gold circle above his head. Right? Dying calmly and peacefully. That's not the picture here. He was suffering. He was in pain and he's crying out. Why? I'm God forsaken. Why? Why? He was abandoned. Mark's entire focus is on the gloomy darkness of the scene, the agonizing suffering and aloneness of the Son of God. Jesus was forsaken. I mean, especially as we consider the sacrificial nature of his death. Jesus, his death would pay the penalty for the sins of others. And he had to be forsaken. He was made sin for those who knew no sin. That we might be counted righteous. He was made sin. The Father turns his face away. Jesus on the cross is drinking the cup of God's wrath. His life was given as a ransom. For many, his blood is poured out. These ideas of sacrifice, judgment, ransom, all of these required Jesus to be forsaken so that he might offer others the promise of never being forsaken. Even in his dying day, he is in our place, forsaken by God, so that we who trust him might never, ever, ever be alone. And so Jesus forsaken. Notice there in verse 35, some who hear this cry, they say, wait, well, he's calling Elijah. They misunderstand. They say, he's calling Elijah. And so someone goes and gets a sponge with some sour wine and offers it to Jesus, wanting to see if Elijah will come to his aid. And so when it seems, as I read this, how I understand it, they they hear him cry. They know he's at the end of his life. They know okay, he's he's about to go out of consciousness. Wait a minute, someone someone go get a sponge. Get get some uh, some sour wine. Wake him up. Let us prolong this uh, this consciousness to see what happens. Is Elijah actually going to come? Does he actually think Elijah? Who else is he going to call? And I think this is just them continuing to mock Jesus and prolong. Let, let's see what else he says. He's starting to talk crazy. It doesn't happen. Look at verse 37. Mark records, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, which then leads to a third dramatic event. The curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, the tearing of the curtain. Now, this curtain was, was part of the temple. There's debate on what, what curtain it was. Was it the curtain between the temple and the courtyard, or was it the curtain between the holy place and the, the most holy place? But we don't really know, but what is clear is that this curtain being torn is seen as a direct act of God. This is a huge curtain that served a significant purpose in the life of the temple. And when Jesus dies, it's torn from top to bottom, as if God has taken it as a piece of paper and just ripped it. Asunder, no longer connected. And it's a dramatic event. It serves, I think there's, there's two overlapping purposes that this tearing serves. First, this is, this is God's judgment on the temple. Right? Ripped. No longer to serve a purpose. I mean, remember, Jesus had said some pretty harsh things about the temple. So we know what he felt about the temple. And here, the tearing of the curtain just confirms his judgment against it. Which in second, related to that, the second point or purpose I think this serves, and it's probably the most common, what you've heard, is that the tearing of the curtain marks the end of all temple sacrifices. It marks the end of the temple doesn't serve a purpose because a new way, Has been opened. No more need for this old way, no longer to serve a purpose. This divider no longer serves its purpose. There's a new way, an open way that that people can now access the Lord. No longer for for sacrifices or rituals of of temple life. Now, through the death of Jesus, there's a new and open way, a living way open to God. Men can freely approach. There's no longer a divider. And just as important, I think, the location that this temple. It's no longer as crucial. And because now the temple is, the curtain's torn, now God's presence is going to go out, as it were, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then the utter ends of the earth, as as the book of Acts records. And so not only is there free access in, I think that's right, that now man can freely approach, but I think also the flip side is now now God is is on the move, on the loose. And it's accomplished by this death. This death has far-reaching implications for the temple and beyond, then lastly, the, the fourth dramatic sign, the centurion's cry. Notice verse 39. When the centurion, this Roman soldier, who would have been in charge of of hundred soldiers, stood facing Jesus, saw how he died, Out of this way he breathed his last, and the centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, I mean, this is a significant cry simply as it is. I mean, here's a Gentile soldier, a Roman centurion, who upon seeing the events that take place simply proclaims, truly this man was the son of God. So that's remarkable in itself, but but think about how this functions in Mark's gospel as a whole. Throughout Mark's entire gospel, the identity of Jesus has been the issue. Who is this man? Mark's been working hard at getting across who this was. If you remember all the way back at the beginning, in February of last year, the father declares at the baptism, this is my son. So it's the heaven split God declares, Son. Here, temple split, same language, uh, a Gentile Roman soldier says, this is the Son. These are kind of two bookends of Mark's gospel saying, Jesus is the Son of God. We saw numerous unclean spirits declare it throughout Mark's gospel. We saw Peter finally declare it with a good confession. And now, at the end, we see a Roman centurion declare it. Mark's gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God, don't miss his identity. This is the crucifixion of the Son of God, which leads to our last verses, verses 40 to 41, the king's disciples. The king's disciples. So in these these two verses, Mark records this this curious group of women, these ladies, and and these are the verses that we'll end with, and, and they make really two simple points. First, these women are the central witnesses to the events surrounding all that happens here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Especially in Mark's gospel, we see these women are central. They are central. They they see Jesus here, they see the empty tomb, and they report to the disciples. These women are crucial. They're the ones who see the tomb and are charged with, with going and delivering the message to the disciples, which... By the way, it's significant for gospel writers, not just, not just Mark, but all the gospel writers, to, to, mention, to mention women as eyewitnesses. They're recording these events with the assumption that the testimony of these women was worth something, which is totally countercultural. This would be a knock on the Christians. You believe the women? Don't you know they're worthless? That's the cultural tenor that this gospel is being written into. These women are, are non-negotiable in the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's worth here. There's value here. Women couldn't even serve as witnesses in a court case. Their voice had no authority. And yet, here's Mark singling them out. The the report of the resurrection is dependent on the witness of, of women. But just as shocking, I think the other reason Mark records these two verses was to show the true or the faithful disciples. I mean, think about this. At this time, where are the others? Right? Where are the men? (laughs) James or John or Nathaniel or Thomas or or Peter, where are they? They they fled. They fled like scared little sheep. Now, yeah, Peter he followed for a little bit, but but then he fled too. He's weeping outside the gate, probably still. But, But here, of the followers that Jesus has recruited and taught throughout his ministry, here as he dies on the cross, there's a group of women who are looking on from a distance. They're the faithful ones. They're the ones who remain. Again, countercultural. Right? The value that, that the early Christians placed on women was countercultural. This group of women is given prominence. They're the ones who saw it all. They're the ones who stayed with Jesus until the bitter end. And in singling them out as he does, Mark would have us emulate these women as the faithful disciples. And so may we all, as followers of Christ, aim to be like them. May we aim to emulate them in our commitment to Christ. Well, as I close, let's pray.